you could guess by that what we're doing. <laughs> we're starting this morning in Joshua. Let me just, before we get started, if you do not have a bulletin, there's a young man here that will bring you one. Josh, come on up here. Anybody that doesn't have one, the reason there's, a, there's an outline on the back that it might be helpful to be able to follow. You won't be able to argue with me over what I said if you don't have one. Back here on the right, Josh, too. We'll pause for just a moment. You know, as I was working through uh, Joshua, I'm a little intimidated. Anytime you start a new book, it's a little intimidating because there's so much that you could talk about, so much that could be looked at. You need to be able to see your way through the whole book before you can start. And and certainly that's true of Joshua. And I've been a little intimidated by it, and I still am. But I thought it'd be good for us to start with kind of an overview of the of how we got to Joshua. From Genesis, Esther, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and now we're at Joshua. And before I begin, just a word, Mark, Linda, it's good to see you guys back. They've had a rough few months. I think we should pray. Let's start there. Lord, as the song has expressed, uh, our desires for your presence, your glory this morning. Our heart is that you would speak to us through your word. Encourage us, Lord, as we see your people and how you've provided for them through the generations. And Lord, help us today to possess our possessions in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. First, maybe a word on Joshua, his name. Um, Remember back in Numbers 14, Joshua's name is changed. Joshua's name was Hosea. You can look at Numbers 14 when you will. And it's a form of the same name, but there's something added when you add Joshua. It adds the J-E on the front. Hosea, it means something like salvation, just salvation. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. And Joshua is a really a transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, the name for God, the covenant name of God. And so Joshua is just brought over into the English from the Hebrew, and it's a form of the same name except in a way that we would say it. Interestingly enough, Jesus is the same name. Jesus is the Greek form of the same name. So one comes from the Hebrew, the other comes from the Greek. They are the same name, and they both mean Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. So from the beginning of the book, you see that there's something new here. Moses was a great man. Moses' name meant something like drawn out. All names are interesting. My name is Philip. You know what Philip means? It means lover of horses, so I'm told, and I don't. Uh, so names aren't always befitting the people, but Bible names usually fit and describe the people. Moses' name, drawn out, and what what does it picture in your mind? It pictures his... his uh, 
youth when he was a baby and Pharaoh's daughter saved him by drawing him out of the water. Uh, but it also kind of makes me think of Israel being drawn out of, of the uh, land of Egypt during the Exodus. Now, I defined some things here that you may want to talk about later with me. Some of these, I believe I'm on very strong ground. I believe I can give evidence for them from the book of Hebrews, from Corinthians, from Paul's writings. But a couple of them, i putting them in here because of logic. So you track with me and see if you see it. But let's go through, at the end of the book of Genesis, where are God's people? They are in bondage in Egypt, right? In the book of Exodus, if you look, uh, just follow with me here, the book of Exodus is the, is the story of the redemption or the deliverance. If you had to put a one-word title on Genesis, it's beginnings. If you had to put a one-word title on Exodus, it would be deliverance or redemption. And it is the story of God's people being redeemed from Egypt. Egypt represents, I think, the, the state of all mankind we, where we are in bondage to our sin. Egypt, I think, is the type of this world, and it's a type of our life before Christ. And so the Exodus is the story of deliverance from Egypt. And, and how specifically, if you think of an event, how were God's people delivered from Egypt? Well, through the Passover. Remember the plagues came, and the last of the plagues, the most severe, and the one that, was the, that turned the tide that God got God's people free was the Passover. And you know, Christ, our Passover, was, was sacrificed for us. And the Passover lamb certainly points forward to the coming of Christ and our redemption. All of these things, I think, picture us. And they picture where we are today. We were in Egypt. We were in bondage to sin. And it was necessary for God to deliver us. God had to intervene. And so he raised up a man that he could use. And then he used an event. He used the blood of the Passover. And that, that Passover uh, spared God's people by faith from that judgment, right? And as they applied the blood, they were spared. And, and I think the picture is there clearly as Christ, our Passover lamb, was uh, slain for us, that his blood is applied and we are spared from judgment. And then from the Passover, they went to the Red Sea. Now, this is one that I, I'm using logic. I don't think I can point to a chapter and verse, but as I track the journey, you think with me on this. We can talk later. You can argue with me if you like. But I think the Red Sea pictures our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, certainly, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and I've listed a couple verses there you can look at. But I think the Red Sea pictures that. They went into the water. The water is walled up around them. They're buried in it. And then they came out the other side. And I think it pictures the, the believer's death, burial, and resurrection in Christ, that we receive the benefits of his work for us. But then we come to the Jordan River. What's the Jordan River picture? Well, 
God had promised a special land to his people all the way back in Genesis 12, chapter 12. He said he's going to give them a land. And we know that it was going to be the land called Canaan. And there's a barrier between God's people and the land. And that barrier, if, if they had left Egypt and traveled directly, they could have been there in about 11 days. But, but what happened in between? They've already been delivered through the Passover. They've gone through the Red Sea. And now they enter into the wilderness and they wander for 38 and a half years. They wander and they wander. And what does that picture? They've been delivered. The Passover blood has already been applied. Salvation has been achieved. They've been uh, taken out of, lifted out of Egypt. But now they're wandering around in a land. Does, it, does that maybe picture us sometimes in the process of us coming from the, the re- reality of redemption to the reality of God's land for us, of Canaan, of God's promised land. Here, and, and think about this with me. When you come to Canaan, Canaan isn't heaven because there's all kinds of wars in Canaan. And when they crossed over the Jordan and went into Canaan, they still had battles there. And yet it was a wonderful land, wasn't it? It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land of abundance. They don't any longer need the manna of the wilderness. Now they have the abundance of the land to live on. And it was a good and pleasant land, as it's described. And so they, they go over the Jordan, or through the Jordan, I should say, again miraculous, and they're taken into Canaan, this sweet, pleasant land. And I believe that Canaan is a type of the Christian's life today in victory. You know, God's design on us, and we're going to talk about this a little more in a moment. You track with me. Uh, God's design on us today is not that we would live in wandering and in the wilderness. God's design on us today is that we would live in victory, that we would live in the fullness of what he's provided he has provided the armor, and, and what's our part is to put it on. He's provided it. You know, the land of Canaan was their land. Somebody has titled the book of Joshua, Possessing Our Possessions. That's a great title. And that's where we are today. Our job is to possess our possessions. We are seated together with Christ in the heavenlies right now, right at this moment. Do you feel like it? Not necessarily, but it's a truth. The book of Ephesians, wonderful parallel between the book of Joshua and the book of Ephesians. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now our part is to possess our possessions, to live in light of the truth, just as their part was to go into the land and take it. God had provided it for them. But it isn't always easy. Now and then there's a Jericho in the way that God has to bring down. And so Canaan, I believe, not doesn't represent heaven at all because there's no battles in heaven. Canaan represents victory and, and the sweet land that the Lord has for his people right here on earth. Now, with that in mind, God has moved his people from the bondage of Egypt 
to the free and good land of Canaan through these journeys. And so now we come into Joshua, we're entering the land of Canaan. Um, There's an interesting transfer of leadership here. Look at uh, back to Deuteronomy 31 for just a second with me. Just turn a couple pages back from Joshua 1. Deuteronomy 31, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, The day approaches when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented himself in the tent of the meeting. So the, the Lord speaks to Moses, who was himself a great leader, and he says, Moses, bring Joshua to me. And who's going to commission Joshua here? God is. God said, I'm going to commission him. So the leadership is going to transfer from Moses to Joshua. Now, there, there's some richness in this. What came through Moses? Well, Moses became the mediator of a rebellious people. Uh, God chose the, Moses to be the leader through whom he would give the Ten Commandments, a perfect standard, a right standard. And, and the uh, New Testament tells us that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. J- grace and truth came through our Joshua, Jesus. So Moses represents the law. Joshua represents grace. I believe Moses represents the whole of the Old Testament. Joshua represents what is to come. You know, the, the law was a good standard, and it, it had its purpose. But the law can never provide change inside us. You know what the law does? It provokes us to break it. What do you do when you see a 50-mile-an-hour speed limit? Come on, what do you do? Do you go 55, 58? How far can I go uh, over that law? Incidentally, that aggravates me. If the speed limit is 50, they ought to enforce 50 and not say, well, you can go 60, right? It ought to be what it is. That's my little personal vendetta toward the law today. But, but law doesn't do anything inside you. If anything, law provokes you to break it, just to go to the edge of it. How much can I do? And so the law couldn't change hearts. Romans 3, you know the verses. It says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law is the knowledge of sin. I visited a man one time years and years ago. This was back in the day when we went to homes. We don't do that much anymore. And we knocked on his door, and he came to the door. I think he was a little irritated that we came. There were two of us. And uh, we told him we were having gospel meetings, which we don't do much anymore either, but we were. We were having meetings in our church, and we invited him. And he said, I don't need it. So we thought it was an opening to talk a moment, so we talked a moment. And he said, you know, he showed me a ring. It was a lodge ring. I'm not sure which one. I don't even remember what the ring was, but it had some kind of a symbol on it that he felt was meaningful to him. Um, you may know what it was, but I honestly do not remember. And and he showed me this, and he said, I have this. And he said, and I keep the Ten Commandments. Okay. Um, how many of you want 
to try to keep the Ten Commandments. And, and if, as God has expanded them in the New Testament, how many of you want to try to keep that? And first of all, how many of you can recite them? And, and I couldn't resist. I said, what are they? Uh, can you recite them? And the answer was no, he couldn't. And by then we had a war. There was no point in talking any further. But people who say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to please God by keeping the Ten Commandments, by the laws of knowledge of sin, the best it could do is show us ourself. Great passage in Galatians 3. Listen to this. I'm going to just pull some excerpts. But all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So if the law says, uh, don't kill, Christ said, don't be angry. He expands it. If the law says, don't commit adultery, Christ says, don't look on a woman. Wrong. And so it, it, when, it, when it's expanded to the heart, we're lawbreakers. We may not kill, but we get angry, right? And so, cursed is everyone that doesn't abide in all things in the book of the law. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The law is not of faith. And then later in uh, chapter 3, he says this. Here's what the law was. The law was our guardian, or some translations say tutor. Some say schoolmaster. The old translation says schoolmaster, I believe. The law was our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to show us ourselves and to show us that we were lawbreakers. That's the best the law could do. The law could never change us from the inside out. Moses, as great a man as he was, could never bring about a message that would transform, change people's hearts. But there was one coming, our Joshua, our Jesus, who would change people's hearts. You know, uh, in uh, Jeremiah a little excerpt out of Jeremiah. The The New Testament was was anticipated all the way back in the prophets. I believe Moses anticipated the New Testament. I believe he anticipated the New Covenant or the New Testament, the coming of Christ. And, and I use the words testament and covenant interchangeably. I'm bouncing back and forth. The words are so close to being identical that I'm not going to try to split them up. So I'm going to use the word covenant and testament without trying to define them. But when uh, the prophet looked forward, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, when they looked forward, they saw something coming that was going to be different than the law, different than the Ten Commandments. You know, I've wondered how we should feel about the Ten Commandments being posted. What can the Ten Commandments do? Well, the Ten Commandments are a righteous standard. And as people view the Ten Commandments, if nothing else, it should convict them over their need. Right? It should convict them of the need for some kind of a redeemer, something that would would, uh, help them to escape the curse of the commands. Well, the prophets saw it. Jeremiah 31. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, for this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I will remember their sins no more. Do you see the transformation? When the new covenant, the New Testament comes, now it isn't an external code. Now it's something that's working within us. It's the Spirit of God working within us to make us to be able to not only be law keepers, but to live above it. You know, the call of Christ is above the call of the law. The sacrificial call that Christ puts on our life today is well exceeds to be what the law called for. But now it comes from the inside out. And, and Jeremiah said, I'm going to put it on their hearts. Well, that's long before Christ came. But all the way back in Joshua, I think we're seeing the pictures of Jesus, our Savior, who's coming. Um, Ezekiel has a, a similar passage. I think it's in chapter 31. You can look at it. Moses was a great man, and I, I wouldn't diminish Moses. He was one uniquely that saw God face to face and no other. And God revealed a great standard through Moses. He was one, when you put a short list of great men in the Bible, Moses is on it, right? And so he, he was undoubtedly a man that God used. God used him to save his people from uh, Egypt. He was the one who God used. And yet Moses could never take the people into the promised land. The law could never take them there. It took Joshua to take them into the promised land. And do you see the picture there? Do you see the picture how that the law could never take us into Canaan, that sweet land of victory, that land where God writes his law in our hearts? The law can't take us there, but Jesus can. And that's what he wants to do. Jesus wants to take us there. He wants us to live in Canaan. You know, I have lived some of my life in the wilderness. How about you? You lived in the wilderness some? I don't like it. I don't want to wander in the wilderness. I want to live in Canaan. I, I want to live in the fullness of all that God has for his people. And you know what God has for his people? He has a sweet victory that he can bring day by day through his spirit, working in us, changing us, transforming us, and making us to live in that good and pleasant land. Jesus said, this is the new covenant or new testament, depending on your translation, in my blood at the Last Supper. As he's uh, setting up what we observe today as communion, and he's giving the instruction for it, and he's sitting before them, and he's saying to them, this is the new testament, the new covenant in my blood. So how do we enter into this new covenant? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we enter into it. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And Jesus is the one who takes us into Canaan. Now, Hebrews says that Christ is the author of a better covenant. Read Hebrews 7 through 9. Read the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews, chapter 2 and 3, 
uh, 4 talks about everything that we've been talking about. Talks about Egypt. Talks about some of the things of, uh, that we've been trying to allude to here. And but seven through nine talks about Christ being the author of a better covenant. If we had lots of time, we'd go back and look at them. In the new covenant, through Jesus, our guilt is gone because He took it. And in the new covenant, now His word is written on our hearts, and it's working through us from the inside out. In the Old Covenant, it was external. In the New Covenant, it's God working in us. Different results, different outcome. The second part of that section in, in Joshua, and uh, let me just go back and read Joshua 1 through 7, and we'll come back to it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore rise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I had promised to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous and careful to do according to all the law that my Moses or Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left, that you'd have good success wherever you go. Now, we need to look at that just a little bit. The, the first section, I, I, my first note there, I said that he is God both of, of Moses and Joshua. I hope that you saw that in Deuteronomy, that, that God is the one who selected Joshua as a replacement for Moses. And then in chapter 34, in fact, I'm going to bounce back there once more to Deuteronomy, read a little bit of chapter 34. Um, the people in verse uh, 8 Deuteronomy 34.8, the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended, and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit and of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Let me just pause there long enough to say, God commissioned Joshua. Moses recognized his commission. And if I could just take a little side path there, I think that's a great way to transfer leadership. Don't you think so? Is that credibility that Moses had from being with his people and their leader has now been transferred over to Joshua. Moses acknowledged God's call on Joshua and gave him his credibility. I I think there's a lesson there in the transfer of leadership. Don't you? You know, when we transferred leadership, Ron and I had worked together. And, and Ron, by virtue of, of uh, just laying his hand on me, I got Ron's credibility, whether I deserved it or not. 
but Ron moved his credibility to me. And whatever credibility I have, my intention is to, to move that to somebody else when we see God raise up and how that's going to work. So I think there's a great picture of a transfer of leadership here, is that God called them and commissioned them. Moses recognized that commission, and then Moses commended him and blessed him, his job. Isn't that good? And I think there's a lesson for us. All that aside. So he's the God of both Moses and Joshua. Then the second thing, look at verse 2 through 6, and you'll see that God always keeps his promises. He alludes to promises that he made all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you people. And so he's, he's remembering this promise that all the way through Genesis and all the events and the terrible times, and then through the Exodus and, and through Leviticus, the, the learning to worship, and through Numbers, the wanderings, God still remembers his promises. He never forgot that he promised a land to his people. God doesn't forget his promises. I might, unfortunately, and you might, and I do, and you do. But God doesn't forget his promises. God promised that he'd never leave or forsake us, for instance. Do you think he's forgotten that promise? Uh, he'll never leave or forsake us. God's promised us a victory over sin. That's his promise. Has he forgotten his promise? Uh, God's, God's promised us that we'd be with him. I, I'm going away, and I, I'm, where I'm going, I, I want them to be with me. He said it a couple times in a couple different ways. But one of these days we're going to be with He's promised us that. Those are promises of God. He never forgets his promises. The promises abide. Our part, our part is to believe his promise and then to live in light of it. And I think that's what you see in verse 7. We, we believe what God says. That's faith. And then we live our lives out in light of what God said. Verse 7, be strong, courageous, being careful to do according to the law. Now, wait a minute. Earlier I said the law couldn't save, right? But he's not talking about the law to save us. He's now talking about a transformed life that can live above that law. Do it. Don't just ignore it. Live above it. Um, there's an interesting pattern in some of Paul's writings. You know, when when Myrna says to me, uh, stop that, what's the subject of that sentence? You, right. It's understood, right? And uh, she says that occasionally, especially when I'm telling my old corny jokes. Uh, she, she says, stop that, okay? Uh, when somebody says to you, shut the door, the subject of the sentence is you. Uh, somebody says, go to the store. The subject of the sentence is you. And in the New Testament, there's a lot of commands like that, where the subject of the sentence is you. Let me give you a couple examples. I alluded to this a bit ago. But Ephesians 6, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Who? You. Do, are we an active participant in putting on the armor of God? Yeah. Were the children of Israel an active participant in taking the land of Canaan? Yeah. So he says, do it, folks, do it. You do it. And, and that's the pattern I think God works in our life. We are participants. 
willing, believing participants in what God wants to do. Philippians 4, he says, Do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Who? You. So does that mean that if I want the peace of God to rest on my life, that I have to do something? Yeah. I've got to trust him. I've got to say, God, I'm giving this to you. There's got to be a conscious act of my will that says I'm giving this to you. And, and that's the way the Lord works in our life. That's the way the Lord worked in Israel's life. Here they are. Canaan's just in front of them. What a great land. Flowing with milk and honey. It's just, I don't know what that means, but it's pretty good. And it had everything they needed. There were a few giants in the land and a few obstacles. But God said, I'm giving you that land. It's yours. Any, any obstacles in your life? Any obstacles in my life? Any things that it's hard to see us getting over? God says, I'm giving you that land. Now, you trust me. Israel, my people, you do according to what I've instructed. Do it. Do it. And then he goes on and says, don't turn from the right or the left that you'll have good success in whatever you do. Do it. Be strong and courageous. So what, what would God have us take from this this morning? I think that's the question I have. It's a good land. I think God has a good land for us on earth. God does not want his people living in defeat. doesn't want us wandering out in a wilderness. God wants his people to live in a land of victory. He wants them to live above the law, not only keeping the law. He wants us to have within us a law that far exceeds thou shalt not kill. We give our goods to people to help them. We send people across the ocean to tell them about Jesus. It's well above the dictates of the law. And, and the Lord wants to put that in us. And then he wants us to live in this land that's, that's plentiful, a land of, of honey and sweetness that he's provided for us. It's a good land. Our part's to possess our possessions. You know, there's an old hymn. Um, I won't sing it. It's, it's Faith is a Victory. How many of you remember Faith is a Victory? Faith is a Victory. Faith is a Victory. Faith is a Victory that overcomes the world. Uh, there's a sense in which faith is a victory. God has provided it. It's there. And so what do we believe? We do. We believe that God has provided it. We are to believe him. It's a matter of faith. In uh, uh, Joshua 1.7, he said, Be strong and be courageous and do as the Lord says. We believe God for salvation. That's the way we're saved, is through faith. No other way, through faith. And we believe God for sanctification. We believe God for deliverance from sin by faith. There's no other way. Uh, we won't do it uh, in and of ourselves. It won't happen. But he will. He's given us a good and pleasant land. Well, we're starting on the book of Joshua. And uh, as inadequate as the introduction may have been, I hope that it whets your appetite for what's to come. 
because there's some great stuff in the book of Joshua. We're going to watch the walls of Jericho come down. What a battle plan, right? What a plan. How many of you would devise that battle plan to bring down the city? Well, we're going to watch God work for his people uh, through Joshua uh, to take him into Canaan. Let's pray. Lord, you've told us in your word that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And God, what I'm praying, I'm, I'm confessing to you that our faith sometimes is very frail. Even in our faith, we need you. God, give us faith. We believe, help our unbelief. Lord, this morning, if there are people who are struggling with an obstacle, something between them and the sweet land that you have for them of victory, Lord, I pray that you would settle in on their hearts that you are their Joshua, you are their Redeemer, you are the one who saves and keeps, you are the one who can take us into that land. Lord, you are the one who puts your law in our hearts. We acknowledge that to you. Uh, without you, we have no hope, but with you, we have all hope. And Lord, I don't know what needs done in our lives this morning, but you do. So we commit it to you. We commit the time to you. We give you permission, Lord. We ask you, we beseech you, Lord, to work in us. In the end, God, I pray that we have a sense of the fullness of your spirit, the fullness of the land that you have for us, of victory in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.